What I like so much about Marie's summary is that it identifies the real strength of this film. And I have some major reservations about it as it went along, but the major strength of it is, and again, it might go without saying, but it should be said, how much can change in a split second? Entire a lot, lives can end, lives can be upended, but you know, it's as horrible as it is to have somebody die in, in a car accident, think about the toll on the survivors. And this is very much a film about the survivors, how you can go into a tailspin after something like that. Your life's been upended, nearly destroyed. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about the new Dungeons & Dragons movie and the movie A Good Person, starting with Dungeons & Dragons. All right, Mike, first, I think to set the stage, I should ask you if you are someone who is familiar with the whole Dungeons & Dragons gaming world. On the one hand, I am familiar with it. On the other hand, I do not indulge. So, <laughs> so, so I have a kind of odd combination of, of, of uh, remarks to make here. What I want to do is actually ask a question that is both technological and philosophical. So I'm being pompous already. But, but for starters, think about the nature of Dungeons and Dragons. And this movie, we're talking about Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. Okay, think about the, the game phenomenon, which goes back decades at this point. It relies very much on collaboration and improvisation, okay? And again, even though I'm the first to admit I'm not a player, I'm not totally at a loss. I have some idea of what's involved. So anyway, my question is this to you, Marie, because I'm sure you're more familiar with it than I am. With a game like this, when you're involved in it, I can imagine being like really pulled into it. It becomes your world, your fantasy world. But it's a very different experience to watch a movie where you are, I think, innately, inherently detached somewhat. In my case, all the more detached because I don't have like a keen sporting interest in it. So I'm watching it with something less than avid interest. Let me ask you, what do you think it's like for somebody who either is an active gamer with this or at least has a, a stronger knowledge of it than I do? What's it like actually watching a movie version of this? What's your what's your take on that? I think that is the question for this. And I have several students who are really into this world and know a lot about it. So I think they come to the would come to the movie with a, a more critical eye. I do remember when Dungeons and Dragons came out. And the way I remember it back in the Stone Age was that it was all very imaginative. It was all kind of like early gaming where you had to describe everything by text, you know, typing it in, you know, walk into room, pick up lamp kind of thing. This was more of an interactive game where you um, could actually get into a physical space with people and act out the things that were supposed to be happening. But it was all very much in your head. And then, of course people who could make money off of the idea got a hold of it and all kinds of things came out of it. There was an animated series. There's these movies that have been created with it that make the most of the lore, but they make it into more of a real thing happening. So I would be very interested in hearing what actual gamers of this who've followed it through the years would think about, well, what's it like to just sit down and watch it rather than play it or be involved in it? So I can't speak to how satisfying it is on that level. I will say that I think what we can talk about is what we think visually of the dungeons and the dragons. So starting with the dungeons, Mike, what did you think of the scenes, the scenery, the action, the uh, if you knew nothing about the lore, just judging it on the basis of what it puts across in terms of the dungeons, what did you think of that? 
Well, again, because as you say, the key word there is the game is interactive and watching the movie is not. So I, I am reduced in, in a sense to your question as in, well, I'm just watching it. What's it like visually? And this is a sort of a, an old song for me to sing, namely name is that, you know, it's it, with the CGI, it's visually busy. But there's that kind of frenetic quality to it, this and that, and then something else. And for me, it all sort of goes by in a, in a, in a blur, not an entirely happy blur, because it's like, a, here's a wizard, here's a druid, here's a sorcerer, here's this and that. And and the the uh, the old refrain in the song is just that, well, so much is happening, but how much of it really matters or registers? Now, I, again, I'm very quick to admit that if I were a gamer, or at least more gamer knowledgeable, I might say, oh, I, I would get the reference, as you mentioned, that, you know, I would watch it with that interest of recognizing the lure, as you put it. I would, I would know some of that. But I'm wondering, even if I know it, it's still not quite the same as being fully invested in it. In other words, somebody has done the imagination for me. So I feel that I'm just inherently drawn back from it rather than into it. I really wasn't crazy about the film, as you probably can tell, and, and I was just sort of marking time as I watched it. And I wonder if the filmmakers themselves even, again, sort of got you know pulled in or sucked into that sense of everything we can do visually now. But I think that's at best a mixed blessing. I think you need some kind of what I call editorial discretion. Now, the film is not overly long, and that tends to be one of the, the problems, I think, with a lot of these films. They just run too long. 134 minutes might sound long, but believe me, we sit through a lot now. There are two and a half hours, three hours of it. So there's a relative restraint that way. Secondly, you know, there, there are some uh, agreeable actors to watch, like, like uh, Chris Pine and the always reliable Hugh Grant. If you need a villain nowadays, it's, it's you know, you dial, if you still dial anything, you dial, you know, for Hugh Grant and he delivers and he's always fun to watch that way. And there were a few scenes that I found were really amusing. There's one scene where they try to, when you mentioned dungeons and so on, there's one scene that really is very funny where they're trying to resuscitate some old corpses. Yes. And, and, and it's, it's a great slapstick routine. I mean, I, I wish, it, you know, if I could just watch those five or 10 minutes, I'd be a happy kid. But I don't think the film has quite enough of that. In other words, it's not a particularly clever film, but there are bits and pieces that I would say are quite clever and, and would stand uh, on their own quite well. From, from your, your smile and your nod, I really, that's also a scene you probably like a lot. I loved those scenes. And, and I know that they were trying to borrow heavily from Monty Python. And those scenes were, were so Monty Python. I could, it could totally be a Monty Python skit. Well, you and know I what, thought- right? You yeah, know what? I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but here I interrupt anyway, right? But no, <laughs> when you mentioned Monty Python, just imagine like a knight in full armor who's having a, a duel and they say, well, you chopped off my arm, but that won't stop me. Kind of thing. I've, I've still got two legs. Oh, you took a leg. I, you know, it's, it's that kind of Monty Python. I was thinking of the body as a source of humor. And, and, uh, and Maria, it, uh, to underscore this point, don't you think that if Monty Python had this material, it would be hilarious for 90 minutes. Here it's hilarious and fits and starts. So that's my last interruption for, for the calendar year. Oh, that's a that's a really good point. It is fits and starts, but when it does hit, it does do, do well. Like the scenes we're talking about, where they've dug up the dead because you apparently you can ask them five questions, and they keep coming back to it as a running gag, including in the um, Easter egg at the end. So worth watching till the end for that. But I thought that was very well done and funny and different and very Monty Python. I also felt like in some ways this was a fantasy Mission Impossible. You know, they had uh, all the elements of, well, what kinds of cool situations can we put peril we could put the characters in and then interesting ways to get them out of the peril. I thought that was also pretty well done. In terms of being a hero's journey, like the, you know, the classic kind of thing, they had all the elements of that in it. Chris Pine, of course, is, he's Chris Pine. This is the most Chris Pine movie of 
of all the Chris Pine movies. He <laughs> gets to be that guy that we see over and over again. I will say that there is a lot of overlap with other movies that is pleasurable if, you know, you recognize it and you like that. It's sort of a fast and furious Game of Thrones kind of thing. There are several scenes with velociraptors that make you think of Jurassic World. And I also have to say, and I know I belabor this point all the time, Mike, but I watched this in Screen X, and there is something to be said for that sort of immersion into a, a fantasy world because you, you, Screen X kind of gives you that wraparound feeling where you actually feel like you were physically in the world. And since this movie re relies so heavily on CGI, that was very effective for me. Yeah, but you know, in, with Screen X, you could have a, a shot of me pushing around a vacuum cleaner and it, <laughs> it, would, be, it would be as terrifying as, as a T-Rex going across the room. Um, so that, I mean, this is something, you know, when you're watching those dimensions, everything, you know what it reminds me of? Like when, and I, I wouldn't have been around for the get-go here, but when things like Cinerama came on the scene, mm -hmm. these huge wraparound, like early 50s kind of stuff. Everything was mesmerizing. It didn't have to be even a roller coaster ride, right? Everything was just fabulous when you saw it on a screen that size. But you know what, Marie, as you mentioned this, uh, uh, the, the expression that popped in my head was pop cultural potpourri. And it's again, uh, Marie, I think it's an example of what I call a mixed blessing. On the one hand, I can sort of smile and appreciate, oh, this is like Mission Impossible. Oh, that's like something else. But on the other hand, it does seem kind of random, kind of arbitrary, just kind of glib and like, okay, this and that. And, you know, for me, it's like snack food then. It's not like the full meal. It's just like, oh, I like this candy and I like that one. And yeah, it wasn't bad overall. What do you think there? Because I don't find it ultimately very satisfying. I just think in bits and pieces it is kind of fun and, and at a certain point I've just had a sugar rush I've had too much I didn't love the movie but I think that's partly because I don't really understand the realm like the true believers would having read up about it a little bit and tell you that all the spells used in the film which are mostly unnamed are all spells used in the Dungeons and Dragons world so for the purist who understood the world it would I think it would feel very believable and and that they got details like that right in terms of it being a world uh, you know another yet another fantasy world i think you and i maybe have a lot of fatigue of watching so many superhero movies that i'm not well i'm pretty sure that you and i are not the audience but i did enjoy some of the characters i love the character who could turn into different animals and i thought that was uh, a fun character an interesting character it's more interested in that character than chris pine and, you know, Chris Pine not being, you know, the major focus, that that takes some doing. I mean, essentially what we're saying is this is really a movie for the fans, for the, for the, for the people who actually play the game. Other folks watching it probably, as you say, might enjoy bits and pieces of it. But but it's something we've seen so often in so many forms recently that, yeah, it's kind of hard to have like a fresh take on it or a fresh appreciation for it. But by the same token, it's not exactly cinematic purgatory. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, it, it, it's easy to watch. It's fun to watch and so on. So I give it that sort of lukewarm, not quite recommendation, but the, the way, you know what I say at a time like this, you could do worse. And, and we've certainly done worse. <laughs> so how's that for a half-hearted compliment? <laughs> I think that is basically a left-handed compliment. But let's talk briefly briefly about the dragons part of it because i think that's part of the reason people people want to see like show me a really cool or scary monster and you know you can credit game of thrones for the fantasy idea of dragons kind of taking hold and i mean once you have a dragon you have not just a monster but fire breathing and all kinds of cool stuff and they do have a dragon in there they call fat smog which i thought was just a hilarious every now and then they do something really funny that sort of takes you aback, you know, like the talking to the dead bodies, but very much a Monty Python kind of thing. Sometimes the jokes really land. 
Well, you know, you know what you remind me of, and this is just, you know, campus lore, if you will, but currently I'm teaching a course on Hollywood in the 1930s, and we've just been watching the 1933 King Kong. So some of the monster movie formula is there already, like as if it weren't enough to have King Kong on Skull Island rampaging with what were state-of-the-art special effects for 1933. Uh, but then when King Kong starts fighting with dinosaurs, I thought, well, this is going to spawn both further King Kong movies, but also Jurassic Park and who knows what all else. So th the phenomenon we're talking about here Dungeons and Dragons is not so far removed from what audiences would have been experiencing in 1933, a kind of monster mashup in some ways. And yes, it's fun. I mean, it, it is enjoyable. Who doesn't enjoy a good monster movie, you know? And so whether it's a dragon or a dinosaur, any of these things, we're all kids at the point where we're watching it. So sure, bring them on. Yeah, you can almost imagine the the team from Scooby-Doo in this world, because it's just satisfying to watch, you know, a gelatinous cube be a, uh, a villain and to have the treasure chest actually open up and and have it, it's alive and it and then it's chasing you with this you know creepy looking tongue there's lots of fun gross out kind of you're a kid watching saturday morning cartoons feel to it well, it's all a variation on Pandora's box in some ways. Like once that box is open, what's going to fly out? <laughs> and, we're, you know, again, there's that quasi mythological quality of all the things flying out there. And, and, and so, sure, I can appreciate it at that level. So I would say it's better than you think it would be. And I know that's sort of damning it with faint praise. But I think I'd like to hear from people who are actually Dungeon and Dragons aficionados, because I'm not sure you and I really got what they were what they were going for here. But just in terms of entertainment. Like you said, you could do worse. That brings us to the second movie, which is A Good Person. And, you know, I'll start off by saying this is a tough movie to watch. But wow, the acting performances in this from Florence Pugh and from Morgan Freeman are just incredible. And of course, I'd, I'd, I'd go to see a movie where Morgan Freeman just stood there and read the ingredients off of a bottle of ibuprofen. So my it's funny, it's funny <laughs> you mentioned that, Marie, because I, I once met Morgan Freeman and that voice is mesmerizing. I mean, we we're just making small talk. But again, you know, not that people have phone books anymore, but, you know, he, he could read the phone book was always the expression for actors like that. And what struck me about that, and Marie will talk in more detail about the story itself. But in terms of his character in this film, there is a quality of Morgan Freeman's that he's had for so many decades now that what I call quiet authority, how often in a film he's he's reacting to something and it's just facially even, you know, and, and, and in another course we were watching Million uh, Dollar Baby and just, you know, in, in that film where he's a, a boxing coach and all so often he's just like on the sidelines watching, observing, making the occasional comment. But in a film like that, Clint Eastwood film, Million Dollar Baby, and in so many of his films, if there's voiceover narration or if he does get a good speech, you just hang on every word, don't you? And and that's why, even though I had mixed feelings about this film, it's just such a pleasure to see him on screen, just simply to get those close-ups of the face and then his occasional comment. And let me hand it back to you now, Marie, because I think you can underscore why it is such a pleasure to watch his performance here in particular, in terms of how he factors into this particular story. And as you said at the outset, why it really is a difficult film to watch. It's kind of a difficult film to recommend for that reason. It's just like, you know, people are looking to go out on a Saturday night, hey, go see that and get depressed <laughs> you know <laughs> although ultimately it's a redemption narrative i mean it's very depressing most of the way through so we're making general comments let me turn it back over to you in terms of the specifics of what actually happens with the florence Pugh character and the morgan freeman character this is one of those movies i like to say that you 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 are glad you have seen once it's not a movie you might you know buy the dvd and watch over and over again but it does underscore 
something that, you know, doesn't happen in the movies all the time, which is sometimes your life can turn on a dime. And the way the movie starts off is Florence Pugh is at her engagement party. She and her partner are madly in love. Everything's wonderful. In fact, at the party, she's playing the piano and she is full of confidence and agency and looking forward. And she's just at the pinnacle. And you and you look at this and think this is this is where everybody wants to be, where everything is going your way. You've met the person you want to be with. You're happy. And then her sister-in-law arrives and they're going to go look at wedding dresses together. Sister-in-law and her husband are in the back seat. Florence Pugh is driving. And she and I'm so glad they didn't make this about texting because it would have just to me been too cliche. But she looks away at her phone for a moment at an app like so many people do, whether it's the GPS or or something else. And in that split second, when she looks away from paying attention to the road, there is this terrible accident. And and thank God they don't really show you that much. They uh, they sort of allude to what really happens. You don't have to watch what must have really happened. She wakes up in the hospital and finds out that her sister, you know, future sister-in-law and husband have died in this crash where she was driving. And then that the movie becomes the aftermath of this terrible event. And lots of things will happen in terms of her becoming addicted to opioids and ending up going to Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous. I wasn't really quite sure which self-help group that was. And Morgan Freeman is the, what would have been her, her father-in-law. And she sees him at the meetings and then they kind of get to know each other better than they, you know, had before. What am I leaving out crucially in terms of the setup, Mike? Only one thing that I'll I'll add to it, namely that the Morgan Freeman character is a recovering alcoholic. So they've got issues, as we would say clinically. And it it, it isn't it's an AA type meeting, you know, in terms of how you would classify that. That's a safe way to put it. What I like so much about Marie's summary is that it identifies the real strength of this film. And I have some major reservations about it as it went along. But the major strength of it is and again, it might go without saying, but it should be said how much can change in a split second. Entire a lot lives can end, lives can be upended. But you know, it's as horrible as it is to have somebody die in, in a car accident. Think about the toll on the survivors. And this is very much a film about the survivors. How you can go into a tailspin after something like that. Your life's been upended, nearly destroyed. You'd almost be better off dead. I hate to put it so bluntly, but you're just, you know, every waking moment you think about this, right? And in her case, her downward spiral will involve drug addiction. And I think this is one of the more convincing depictions I've seen cinematically of how a life like that can go because. Because, you know, some movies you think like somebody from the start has been troubled for whatever reason, you know, you know, they're, they're, they're drinking at age 10, whatever, you know, in downward spiral, you go from marijuana to heroin, whatever, that kind of a thing. Her life is not that. As Marie said, she's about to have a ha- you know a happy wedding ceremony and everything's looking great. And then suddenly it all changes. And once you start on a downward spiral like that, how difficult it is to halt it and somehow to find any kind of peace, any kind of resolution. That's the strength of the film, along with, as we've said already, those performances, Florence Pugh and Morgan Freeman. And they're really well cast here. They really, and when they they meet there, the wariness, the, the tension between them. Uh, how do you talk to somebody like that? How do you say I'm sorry? Somehow the words themselves can never quite do it. And this is where again the strength of the performances, and I would say particularly Morgan Freeman's, is just look at his face. And you can read so much into it. And this is, again, a case of we've been talking about interactivity, haven't we, in terms of these films are so different. But the sense that with a movie like this, you are drawn into the face, into the close up, your imagination, you kind of creatively project onto it, your thoughts. And the film, at least initially, doesn't club you too much with what you should be thinking or feeling. And I'm sort of tipping my hand. I think there's a problem later in the film with the film being kind of heavy handed with the scripting. I think it does 
and I'll, I'll talk about this in a little while some more, but I think further into the film, it, it does underscore things a bit more than, than they should be. I think some of the dialogue is a little too ponderous. I think some of the scenes are a little too convenient. The redemption narrative maybe is, for my taste, at least kind of glib at a certain point. But but that's that's my ultimate disappointment in it. But but um, overall, I, I thought the film was very effective, as Marie said. But I, I will underscore one of Marie's points here. Namely, it's the kind of film that you can appreciate when you see it. But I'm honestly not thinking I want to see it again, or at least not for a while. It's like, do I want to put myself through that again? <laughs> I'll take another road, thank you. Well, I think part of what makes it so difficult is it's a movie about culpability. And for the longest time, of course, she deflects, you know, it really, it was the it was the backhoe driver. He's the one who's responsible. I wasn't drunk. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't on drugs. I was, you know, that it wasn't it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. But the fact is, she looked away for a moment. And that's when it happened. And that's why I think it's powerful, because we've all done it. We've all looked at, you know, what do we have in the radio, change the channel or, you know, you have to um, accept that this is so possible for everybody. Let me give an example of that. And this is not drawn from personal experience, just an experience that became a news story in Baltimore some years ago. And, and it was on a road that I drive on all the time, so I could relate that way. There was a father with a, a young son and he was driving the kid to school, you know, and suddenly, you know, the, the traffic light was changing and it was changing just at the point where he was looking to change the, the radio station. And so he, as Marie says, just for a split second, he looks down just to change the station. In that split second, he also realizes, oh, the light is changing. I better stop. He hits the brakes really hard and the airbags bounce out. And, you know, this can happen. It's a very young child in the front seat, which probably shouldn't have been, but in the front seat and the airbag killed the child. He was there and, and saw his son die next to him, all because for a split second, he he looked down to change the radio channel and, being, and then being a good citizen thinks, oh, I can't run a red light. I got to stop fast. Think about what that life was like after that. I mean, I, I don't want to think about it. It's just too horrible to contemplate. That that story took place years ago, but it's always stayed with me as an example of how much can change in a moment. Yeah, see, that is that is exactly the kind of thing that it gets across. And when she becomes addicted to the opioid, it's not just because she also hurt, got very badly hurt in the accident. It's that every time she starts to come down from the blankness that the, the drugs give her, she's not just in physical pain. She can't face what's happened. It's so emotionally awful that she, that's really what's making her seek the opioids, not so much the physical pain, but not being able to face the consequences of, of what she did. And, and you know, the, the movie does great complex things with the story and that her fiance, you know, still wants to marry her and, you know, get past it, which, you know, seems like a very adult, sort of storyline where, yeah, stuff's going to happen. It's going to happen whether you guys, if you get married, you're going to, you know, have things that you're going to have to deal with that are unthinkable. But this feels like something, how would you ever get over it? How would you ever not have some sort of different opinion about, yeah, but if it wasn't for you, my sister would still be alive. It's these things that you can't really fix that I think is, it's kind of daring in terms of the of the story. So, so Mike, what were your, what were, what were your misgivings? What, what, well, uh, well, before I get to the misgivings, day. before I get to the misgivings, another strength <laughs> of the film actually is the writer director, Zach Braff knows this territory. It's Northern New Jersey, basically. And a reminder that one of his earlier films, Garden State in 2004, also has a really good sense of what I call turf. 
It really knows the, 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 the streets. It knows the suburban geography. That matters here because, again, that kind of verisimilitude of these are real people. Here's what happens in a moment. You really feel like you're there. So even just like simple scenes where it's like going down a street, to a, you know, this is a real street. It's not some Hollywood dressed up street. Uh, that bears emphasizing because that makes a difference in a film like this. So, again, that's to its credit. Where the film lost me ultimately and, and really did lose me was it's what I call a stack deck. And I don't want to spoil what actually happens towards the end. I've already somewhat split up by calling it a redemption narrative, just so you know it's going to be totally grim. But as it moves towards its redemption narrative, there is a climatic party scene near the end where so much converges. And I can't go, go into detail in terms of particular characters and resolution, but Marie's nodding because she knows the scene I'm talking about. That is the kind of scene you work up around a conference table. Like, okay, guys, we, we and, and I don't mean it in a hackney sense, like we need a happy ending. How do we get there? But it verges on that. Like, okay, what has to come together here in terms of characters resolving differences, people getting along, maybe the right people getting together, et cetera, et cetera. So much converges so quickly at this party that I had one of my proverbial oh brother moments of just it, it was just too glib, too convenient, all this happening once here. And some of the other critics have actually commented on this in reviews of saying that it verges on being either like a, a cartoon or a, or a dream or something at that point. Is it really happening this way? And it was just too nice and neat. And, and again, the expression I like to use is, you know, tied up with a ribbon and a bow kind of thing. I just think the film ultimately sort of has a cop out that way in terms of what how life usually really does go and how it's going to go here. And so for me, uh, the film really kind of fizzled in that home stretch. Well, Mike, I have to, you know, play the devil's advocate and say, what would you have had them end it? How would you have had them end it otherwise? I mean, it, because Marie, people, it would be so need, depressing. Exactly. <laughs> it would be so depressing. Are you kidding? <laughs> I would become a drug addict after watching it. <laughs> you would need counselors on hand for people. Counselors the in the lobby. I know what you're saying. It would be so grim. And you do. I, one thing I will say, I thought in terms of the writing that I was very, very well done is there are no stock characters here. Florence Pugh at times, her character, you will be just so frustrated with her and just wanting her to don't act like that. Don't be like that. Stop doing that. And she had, there's a great foil for her in her mother played by Molly Shannon, which while you're trying to figure out, well, what would I do if this was someone in my family? What would I say if this was my friend? You see Molly Shannon try all of the things that she would try. And most of it is really ineffectual because you just feel so helpless. And Mark Morgan really Freeman also has his moments where he's not all that admirable all the time either. That's one of the powerful elements in the film is that sense of, of relapse that, you know, if you have a loved one uh, or just an acquaintance who's going through something like that, you like to feel they're on an upward path. Things are getting better. They're going to the AA meetings and so on. But how often people do fall back. And this is where it's incredibly frustrating for that circle of relatives and friends, because you feel like, oh, my gosh, I thought you were recovering. And now here you've gone out back to either take a pill or have a drink or whatever. And it's it takes years sometimes to get back, doesn't it? If you ever do. Some people, you know, become addicted early in life. And here they are in middle age and still that way. And she seems like she could be on that trajectory, doesn't she? She seems like she's just going to keep messing up. And eventually, as much as people love you and want to help you, people do want to sort of throw up their hands and almost give up at a certain point. The film captures that really well. There's a scene where, and of course, you know, because of the, the kind of story it is, that there are all kinds of things have to happen before the character actually reaches rock bottom. So you have to follow him on this, you know, downward trajectory to the worst kinds of things people are capable of. And that's where you lose, I thought you lose some sympathy for Florence Pugh's character because she ends up at this bar 
where she's shown up without any money, expecting, you know, that somebody's going to end up paying for her drinks, et cetera. And she has a conversation with some guys she went to high school with. And even in the midst of what has just happened to her, she has no humility. She has no uh, self-awareness. She's just such an incredible jerk. How did you feel about her character at that point, Mike? Because I oh, kind of I, I, gave up point, on her. At, at that point, you know, is she our protagonist? You really start yeah. to wonder. You know, like I, I was being sympathetic, but Marie, but again, in a situation like that, even if it's someone you are sympathetic towards, at a certain point, you want to just give up and say, "Well, you brought it on yourself." Yes. <laughs> you it, or you're just being a jerk, and that's the point. It's almost like someone like that would ask you for some money. Now, maybe at first, you think, "Okay, I'll give you five dollars, ten dollars," and then if you realize, "Well, they're just using it for a fix," right? At some point, aren't you going to say no to it? And 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 you know, and not only be like harsh and saying no it goes beyond tough love doesn't it it's like no i've been used um, i don't want to be an enabler any longer isn't, isn't it's that kind of moment right so the people are about to give up on her but that i think her low point probably is that barroom scene because she's agree. losing the audience sympathy at that point she, and jerk is the perfect word it's like what an idiot what a what jerk idiot. yeah <laughs> so to the movie's credit again the fact that she can hit that low point and then uh, redeem or somehow win back some of our sympathy you're absolutely right yeah that i think was the powerfulness of the performance because it's courageous to make yourself that unlikable and then do the work to win the audience back. So that does bring us to the end of this episode. But don't forget to check out our other ones at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also on Dragon Digital Radio at Spotify and Pandora. And we will see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.